Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. It's been a very difficult few days. For Montreal Canadiens fans and for hockey fans, NHL fans, Mike Bossy dying a few days ago and yesterday, the legendary Guy Lafleur of the uh, Montreal Canadiens. With us now is Guy Carboneau. You played with uh, Guy Lafleur, Montreal Canadiens player. Also the former captain of the Canadiens, inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, as they both uh, were. And uh, Guy Carboneau also became the head coach of the Montreal Canadiens. Guy, thank you very much for taking the time. must be extremely difficult for you and the Montreal Canadiens alumni. Well, it was a tough day yesterday, um, uh, for sure. Um, like you said, you know, last week, uh, or early this week, we lost Mike Bossy, uh, and then, you know, yesterday was uh, Gila Fleur, so it's been, uh, is it a tough week? Uh, I think everybody knew that uh, this was going to ha- end at one point, but, uh, you know, yesterday having that phone call uh, early in the morning was not was not easy, and it's been, uh, it was a long day, but... Uh, you know, I think uh, he got the tribute that, uh, that he deserved, and uh, I think at least now he's at peace. Yeah, he was just an amazing, amazing player. And I, I remember when he was drafted by the Canadians, and he was going to be the um, combination Jean Beliveau and Maurice Richard. Yep. And for the first couple of years, Habs fans were saying, what's with this guy? He only scores about <laughs> 20 goals a year. Then off came the helmet, and in went the puck. It was an amazing transition. Well, I mean, you know, I think uh, not everybody, you know, uh, developed the, the, the right way. I think there was a lot of pressure on himself. Like you said, you know, they, they, they made... They made that trade with, uh, I think, uh, so that they could draft E so he can replace Jean Beliveau. And, you know, having the career that Jean had, there was a lot of pressure on E. And uh, I'm sure it was, uh, you know, I, I had the same, I would say, problem. But, you know, I, I, in those years, when you came into the NHL, um, you had to take go through the process, which was... Uh, you know, starting on the third or fourth line, uh, playing uh, small minutes, uh, and I think that's what happened with Guy. But I think once, um, I, I think once Scotty Bowman realized that uh, what he had in his hands, that uh, he let him loose, and, and uh, everybody saw the result after that. Absolutely. What was the experience like for you? You grew up watching Guy Lafleur. You saw that. That goal that he tied uh, the series, yeah. so the game with with the Bruins, and the next year you're on the bench, sitting with, and you're playing with Guy Lafleur. What's that experience like? Well, I think I had the best of both worlds. Uh, you know, I think growing as a kid in Quebec, uh, Montreal Canadian was uh, you know the team that was always on TV. So uh, I grew up watching, uh, you know, at the end of the career of, of Jean Beliveau and. Uh, the, the start of the career of, of Guy Lafleur, and I think like every kid, you know, at my age, um, we would go on the street in the summer or on the ice rink outside and thinking that we're Guy Lafleur and we wanted to be like him. So uh, he was kind of my idol when I was a kid. Uh, and then, you know, I had the chance to be drafted by the Canadian in 79, and he was still having uh, three, four years left in his, in his career. So having a chance to, you know, be his, his teammates and, and uh, sit 
with him every day, go travel with him every day. Uh, it was it's quite an honor and uh, something that I'll remember all the time. What was he like as a teammate, and what was he like in the room? Was he a motivator? How did he interact with the players? <laughs> he was not. He was not somebody that would talk a lot. I think his, his action was more on the ice. Uh, it was, you know, but uh, what he did to get prepared for a game, I think, is is is. Uh, preparation. Uh, I think it's all everybody knows about it. Like you know, on a game day, you would come to the ring around two two thirty in the afternoon, while everybody comes in at five or five thirty. Uh, get dressed, half dressed, and then you know, tape his sticks, and uh, he did what he had to do to get prepared. But uh, he was somebody that was really simple. Uh, was not hard to coach. I'm sure uh, he knew what he had to do on the ice. Uh, he wanted to be the best. That that's I think that's what kind of uh, I remember all the time. Like he wanted to be the best on the ice. He wanted to uh, show the people that in the stands that they deserve that you know whatever the the price that they pay for the tickets. He wanted to make sure that they were going back home happy. So he uh, he, he worked hard and uh, he was a great teammate. Uh, I think he understood coming into the NHL that. Um, you know, if he was going to be successful, that uh, he needed people around him also, and so he treated people around him uh, on the same level that everybody treated him, so it was pretty special for that. Is there a Guy Lafleur memory that you can share with us uh, away from hockey, from the guy who's not wearing his skates, who's on the ice in the forum? Is there a moment, is a memory? Well, well, I mean, you know, I, I remember the first day I, I, I came into the forum. That was, that was my first experience when I was drafted. I've never had the chance to come to the uh, to the most uh, the forum before. Uh, I've mean, never met those guys. It's not like today where, you know, they get drafted and they have a chance to meet the players uh, for, for a couple of days before they come to training camp. I didn't have that chance. So, so, but the first time, uh, you know, I saw him, like he made us, feel comfortable um, you know uh, on the road you know what I was really impressed with him is uh, pretty much everybody that I knew that when we were going to practice uh, everybody had jeans and t-shirts and you know sneakers uh, I never saw a Gila Fleur in jeans uh, whatever it's games or practice or traveling uh, he always had a suit on and most of the time he had a tie on so uh it was, uh, and and the thing with him, like he had all the time in the world for the people. Uh, I think he, he he knew that what he was doing he was uh, was a privilege, uh, you know, to play in the NHL, and he wanted to treat the people like everybody else. So he, he gave a lot of time to sign autograph for kids, uh, for people. Uh, whether we were on the road uh, or at the, at the forum, uh, he always took that time to sign every every signature that he could. Yeah, I had the uh, the privilege of meeting him, and uh, a real gentleman. You know, he he didn't know me from anybody else in the room, but he took all the time, <laughs> and he we had a conversation. Yeah. It was like he was talking to a friend, you know, and he made me feel very much at ease, very comfortable just talking to him. Special gift. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's something that uh, I think you know. I, I've there's a lot of people that talked yesterday about uh, about him. Uh, people that knew him 
for a long time, people that met him a couple times, and I think what what comes out of it is, is how accessible he was for everybody. The crisis as it continues in Ukraine and in Mariupol, where the Russians have said or said a few days ago that they were going to bypass that large steel plant. Putin saying that uh, as far as he was concerned, victory had been achieved when it had not. And the word today is that the Russians have again attacked the steel plant. The uh, head of the United Nations Human Rights Organization says, here's a quote, horror of human rights violations have been perpetrated against civilians. Dmitry Gorin is the Ukraine Member of Parliament for Mariupol, and uh, Mr. Gorin's been on this program on a number of occasions. He's back with us today. Dmitry, how are you? Uh, we are okay. Uh, we have a war, as you know, but also we have an Easter tomorrow, like uh, Eastern Christian Easter. So all the countries in the war, but hoping for, you know, a big revival. What can you tell us about what's going on in Mariupol today? In Mariupol, there are still one, almost 100,000 people, by estimate of uh, mayor's office. Uh, the city uh, residential areas are mostly occupied uh, by Russian troops, but we have our army. Uh, they are all there, our border police and police and Azov uh, battalion. They all joined on the territory of Azov, Azov steel iron and uh, steel plant. And it's pretty large territory, around uh, 10, 000, uh, 10 uh, square kilometers, and uh, with uh, uh, like buildings and with underground structures. And uh, as you remember, two days ago, uh, Putin uh, made an order to stop assault uh, on uh, of Azovstal, uh, still planned. But uh, yes, of course, like always, when Russia says something, uh, it's uh, totally in contrary what what they are doing. So. So assault is uh, just uh, going on. Uh, the uh, Azov uh, steel plant is uh, heavily, heavily bombarded uh, by Russian uh, uh, Russian planes and Russian bombs and artillery, uh, and uh, uh, we are waiting for this assault uh, to continue. Uh, on the territory of the Azov steel plant, is there is no not only. Uh, uh, our soldiers, Ukrainian army soldiers, but also civilians, around 1,000 of uh, civilians, and uh, mostly these people are families of Ukrainian soldiers. And uh, we understand why Azov Battalion and the Ukrainian soldiers, they're ending until the last bullet and the last man because their families are with them and... Uh, as we know, after Bucha, after Irpin, uh, what Russians do with the families uh, of uh, Ukrainian soldiers, these women, these children, they will be raped and they will be killed. So on the Azovstal territory, uh, we have uh, our troops and uh, uh, our Ukrainian uh, uh, Ukrainian government already said that, of course, we're uh, thinking about uh, unblocking of uh, Mariupol with a uh, military way, uh, but we are waiting uh, weapons from our international partners that uh, will help us, uh, will be possible, will make possible uh, this to happen. 
And on the other territory of uh, Mariupol uh, that are occupied by Russian troops, there are uh, mass deportations of uh, uh, Mariupol people to territory of uh, Russia. I just uh, several days ago, I helped to leave territory of Russia. One woman, uh, 73 years old, that were deported to the border of Kazakhstan. And uh, we evacuated her to St. Petersburg and then to Narva and Tallinn, to the uh, Church of European Union. Uh, so we have, I have like firsthand uh, evidences of, of these uh, deportations. And also uh, maybe you hear, heard that uh, two big mass graves were found on the satellite images. Uh, around uh, 10,000 people can be buried in uh, a grave of uh, such size. Uh, and uh, it's uh, comparable already with mass graves uh, under Nazi occupation of Mariupol in 1942. Mm. Uh, and uh, after uh, this um, uh, the, the repressions and uh, after mass killing of uh, uh, in 1937 by, made by Stalin and uh, Soviet Russia. Uh, so what's uh, that was going on in Mariupol? Yeah. Um, just to hear you speak about what is really a, a progression, a litany of horrors that the people of Mariupol are not, not, not have suffered, they have, but they continue to suffer is so deeply disturbing. D does the Ukraine military have the essentials that it needs. I know it needs a lot more in the way of, of supplies and weaponry. So specifically, do you know what the Ukraine military requires from Canada, from the United States, from Britain and other Western nations? What is most necessary? Yes, of course. It's uh, long-range artillery, and we already started to get it uh, from uh, USA also. And uh, we need the tanks, of course, if you uh, need an um, offensive uh, uh, military operation, you need uh, armored vehicles. Uh, and uh, we need more drones and uh, also uh, the suicide drones, switchblade drones. And uh, uh, for because we cannot, you know, they, 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 not, they will always outnumber us. Always. They have, they don't, uh, they don't, they don't. Don't have interest about their people. They death. They leave uh, just bodies of soldiers on the battlefield. They don't don't take them. It's it's pretty weird what that's what's going on. But we need offensive weapons, and we need once again tanks, drones, long range artillery, and uh, of course planes for control controlling the uh, airspace. Yeah, Canada has uh, apparently sent out uh, artillery. So, you know, I know you need that. So that's good from, from our federal government to have done that. My question, though, I, I, I look at the horrors that I see, Dimitro, uh, and we've been seeing it for weeks now, and they just get worse, and the Russians' behavior is abominable. So I ask myself, how, does, how do you sit down and have peace talks with Putin and with people who've done this to your people? It, it would be extremely difficult, I'm sure, I'm, I, hopefully the peace talks will happen. But to sit down with Putin and have peace talks would be extremely difficult. Any war finishes with uh, peace talks. That's, uh, that's a normal. Uh, but uh, in uh, this situation, we don't see any real wish uh, to have a peace agreement from the side of Russia. They are regrouping uh, near on the Donbass, and they want to... 
uh, encircle uh, Ukrainian army uh, group. It's around 40,000 uh, soldiers uh, on Donbass. Uh, they don't have success now, but they uh, continue uh, to do it. And uh, we, I am very pessimistic about these peace talks because Russian just use, uh, to use these peace talks to distract international uh, society. That's uh, the, the only uh, target of, of this process. And uh, uh, Putin said uh, uh, that he's uh, uh, that that's not time. Uh, he said to Chancellor of uh, Austria that it's not time uh, for peace talks and uh, for uh, to stop uh, like firing, to stop uh, shelling. And uh, so, personally, me once again, I'm very pessimistic. I I am sure this uh, war will have military decision. Yeah. Uh, do you have any sense that there may be, and I ask this because we're going to be speaking to a, uh, a former CEO of a Russian bank shortly who has called Putin a terrorist who murders his hostages. And, and I've seen other influential Russians, wealthy Russians, who are challenging Putin. They're not doing it inside Russia because they've, they've had to leave, but there seems to be opposition now growing against uh, Putin. Do you have any sense that that's going on? I think uh, Russia also had opposition uh, to Stalin, and uh, this opposition were mostly killed, mostly all of, all of them. Uh, and uh, I don't have uh, histor historical examples uh, about uh, in Russian history that uh, in, in this case of dictatorship, uh, there will be a real cult. The cults in Russian history is are always when the king is weak. That's their model. Right. And uh, they they live under dictators and it uh, looks like uh, that is uh, not okay for them like by what they're saying, but uh, it's okay for them by what they're doing because we don't see real protests. And we see that a lot of uh, Russians and also in Russian elites, they're saying that if we already started the war, we cannot lose. In some way, they're right, because when Russia lose, and we see all of us, we see now that Russia will uh, lose this war just because they cannot win against all the world. And when the Russia uh, lose this war, will lose this war, it will be the end of Russian Federation as a country that we, we know. Yeah. You know, and they understand it. So this uh, very small... Uh, histories about uh, businessmen protesting or about, you know, this uh, woman on the Russian TV protested. Yes. It's uh, mostly uh, stories about people that can, uh, that are trying to save themselves, their lives, uh, but not about, you know, changing uh, the dictature to democratic uh, government and democratic processes. No. Putin has his sights on taking East Ukraine, as you've heard, and according to one of his generals, also the south of Ukraine, Andrei Movchan, is the former CEO of the Renaissance Credit Bank in Russia, and he was named the most successful CEO of an asset management company in Russia by Forbes. Mr. Movchan is also a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Moscow Center. We've spoken with him before. 
Mr. Mofjan, thanks for coming back on the program. You've said that Putin is like a terrorist who murders his hostages. You've also been critical of sanctions on Russia imposed by the West in a Moscow Times commentary, and you said those sanctions essentially increase Putin's power in Russia. Are you still of that view? Uh, good evening. Uh, well, uh, I, I, w- I was not criticizing the sanctions uh, in general. I was talking about the fact that um, attacking Russian wealthy people, whoever they be, the oligarchs or the middle class who who held their monies abroad and who invested into the global markets, uh, would alienate the, these people, uh, inevitably alienate these people and make them closer to, to Kremlin and to Putin because the West does not give them any other way to to behave. Um, And I I, I was saying that instead of uh, cutting Russian uh, financial flows off and making people uh, illegal to to hold their money abroad, uh, the West could have made um, much better if they allowed Russians to withdraw money from Russia with no limitations. Specifically, the the goal of the sanctions would be to weaken the militaristic machine of the country, and the less monies uh, reside in Russia, the the better in that sense. Okay. Is it your sense that, given what we see now and the difficulty Putin has had getting his military to gain control over Ukraine, and we're hearing from more voices coming out of Russia or? expats who've moved around the world challenging him is there a do you have the sense that he could be in trouble from within the country inside the country i I don't think that first the the russian military have that much of a difficulty now they are uh, they they definitely uh, are defeated in terms of the blitzkrieg uh they they wanted to occupy ukraine in a few days they they didn't didn't make it uh, but now they are in a long war and they have enough resources to maintain the war. They still have enough rockets to destroy the infrastructure in Ukraine. And at least Putin does not, uh, in my humble opinion, believe that the cause is lost. Uh, but, but if it is, um, then, then still Putin would share the defeat with the, the nation, with the population in Russia. He would sell it as a defeat from NATO. He would say that nobody would have expected NATO to attack Russia. And, and because NATO attacked Russia, like the, the Nazi Germans in uh, 41, in 1941, um, then the Soviet Union was retreating their troops and they lost much of the territory. And here um, the same thing happens again. They started to lose the, the territory. They, they lost the cause in Ukraine. But now they need to gather their forces and come back and attack back. And that's what Putin will be preparing Russia for the years to come. How does this war, this this assault on Ukraine come to an end? How would you say, Mr. Movchan, it could and should? How does it come to an end? I'm in no way a military analyst, uh, and I don't know the future. Uh, I, I know that outcomes can be vastly different. It depends on the, the balance of forces in coming days. It depends on how how much weapons will the Ukrainians receive, how trained they would be, uh, how much resources would Russia uh, employ for that, would be their uh, mobilization of, uh, of civilians in Russia or not. Um, the most likely, and, and I'm not an expert again, but, but for in my mind, in my opinion, the most likely variant would be that the war would continue for long. Uh, it will be passive uh, to a certain extent like now, 
um, Russia would try to destroy as much infrastructure as possible in Ukraine, to weaken Ukraine as, as much as possible. Um, and we, we can see it lasting for months, if not, if not quarters, if not more than a year. Okay. And in uh, about 30 seconds, can you tell me whether you believe the sanctions are actually starting to have an effect on the Russian economy to the point that it will be seriously felt and there may be pushback from inside Russia because of the effect of the sanctions? The sanctions obviously have effect on the economy and the economy shrinks and the economy will have a problem. It's a major crisis for Russia. But the present sanctions would not make Mr. Putin retreat. Uh, what we need to make him retreat is a total embargo on the hydrocarbons, on the exports of hydrocarbons. The problem is that Europe is not ready for that. And I see no signs of them being ready in the near future. So for the third time in a very short period of time, the Conservative Party of Canada is engaged in a leadership race. And joining us on the program is Jean Charest, the former federal progressive Conservative Party leader, also the former premier of Quebec, who is now contesting the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. It's been a long time since we've spoken to each other. Mr. Charest, how are you and why are you back in the federal political arena? I'm doing very well, and I'm back because of my passion for candidates and the common thread of my whole career, as you know, Roy, in the times that we've chatted, uh, whether the 95 referendum are going on to lead the Federalist Coalition in Quebec to fight against the separatists, and what I see now is a country that is badly divided, balkanized, and that, honestly, uh, hangs on Mr. Trudeau. That's his, his responsibility and a conservative party that needs to get itself organized to be the national alternative that's going to connect the East and the West and, and be the uh, the national party that uh, is there for Canadians and a real conservative alternative. That's, that's the reason why I'm running. Yeah, let me look at a couple of things that you've tweeted about. Uh, your quote is, I've built pipelines, I'll build them again. So the question, I, I'm in approval, I certainly support that, but how? Regulatory structure is not supportive. You'll encounter protests, maybe another national rail disruption. You have to deal with Bill C-48 and 69, a non-supportive premier and government of British Columbia, and a non-supportive premier and government of your home province of Quebec. So how do you build the pipelines? Well, I did it in Quebec. I did it because I, I was out there, first of all, supporting it. You know, one of the unusual things, Roy, about the recent pipeline project is that the never, prime minister never got up and say, I support the project. And I can tell you from experience, projects of this nature do not get done. If the prime minister doesn't say, this is a good idea and we should do it, just saying we should do an environmental assessment won't do it. And in, in the case of Energy East, I was favorable to the project when I was premier. When I was out of office, I worked for TransCanada. What I had proposed is that the Quebec Pension Fund, like is the full by part of the project, but uh, neither TransCanada or the government of the day went along with that. Had they done that, had they taken that approach, that's the kind of thing or experience that, you know, that I bring to the table that would have allowed, I think, the project to go through. So I'm not going to pick and choose the project. That's not my job. But if projects do appear on the radar screen, I will speak to them, and I'll make sure that uh, the people know the government of Canada wants to get it done. And we'll amend and we'll change the laws to adapt them. I mean, this Environmental Assessment Act needs to be adapted to have predictability and have uh, an approach that is uh, able to approve projects as opposed to just throwing up roadblocks that uh, they never get done. Okay, so you'll change the legislation that needs to be changed. What would you do about the carbon tax? Well, we need a comprehensive approach to climate. And by the way, we'll be announcing our policy next. 
week, and that includes supporting carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, green, or blue, or biofuels, and small modular reactors. I'm very favorable to uh, the whole nuclear industry. I think that's absolutely essential to get to 2050. I am favorable to a putting a price on carbon, and uh, we need to do it in a way that's smart, not discriminate it against rural uh, Canadians and not make it a wealth uh, transfer tax, make it simple and flexible. For example, I would not have increased the carbon tax on the 1st of April, not with this surge of inflation. So we'll be coming out with a policy next week, and it'll be very comprehensive. But we need to be smart about this, uh, Roy. If we're not, conservatives are not going to get elected. I mean, it's that simple. We just can't. We're no, we knock on doors. If we don't have a credible, workable approach, uh, we're, we're not in the game. And I, we've done it before. I mean, it pains me to see the conservatives not be credible on this. When we did the Montreal Protocol, on CFC, the most successful environmental protocol in the world. We did the Clean Air Act for the United States in 1990 to reduce SO2 emissions, what we call acid rain, and and one of the most successful protocols or treaties again in the world. And yet, and yet uh, today, it's as though uh, we're nowhere on this issue. When in fact, we should. You, be you'll have an array of opposition up against you, as you know. So when you say you would adjust the legislation, change the legislation as required. When it comes to pipelines, that is what people want to hear. Let me ask you about health care. So we had the president of the... And, and let's keep in mind that and we just heard this earlier today. The Canadians are really struggling with the whole idea of inflation and uh, the cost, increased cost. 57% of Canadians told MNP that they have concerns. They may not be able to meet their bill payments at the end of the month. That's 57%. 40% are concerned about bankruptcy if interest rates climb and if, if, if inflation continues. So I want you to talk about that. But please as well, this is important. We only have limited time. One of the points that you make most strenuously and most directly in your campaign for the leadership of the Conservative Party is your health care plan. We've had the Canadian Medical Association and the nurses unions tell us just a few weeks ago it's in crisis. What do you change? What are the fundamentals? I changed the Canada Health Act to allow the provinces to innovate, experiment, introduce under a single payer, Roy. I want to be very clear. We're not, we're not talking about people putting their hand in their pocket when they go to the uh, hospital or a clinic, but innovate to allow the private sector to work with government, make uh, arrangements, make uh, develop models to deliver health care more efficiently, more rapidly, and control costs. I'll give you an example. We could very well have in Ontario a hip and knee replacement clinic. They could do a 1,000 cases a year under a set price. They could do the diagnostic, the operation, post-operation rehab, and be more efficient, more cost uh, cost control, and free up beds in hospitals for cases that are more complicated. That's the kind of thing we need to change. Our health care system is broken, and the people who work in it are real heroes, but it is broken. Now is the time has come for us to change the Canada Health Act, which always was viewed as a sacred cow, and I would do that. And you, and you uh, stewarded it to your satisfaction in the province of Quebec while you were premier for nine months. Yeah, nine years, not nine months, nine, nine years. Nine years, well, we made a nine lot of years. changes. In a very, very yeah. Nine years, it was very tough to, to deal with it. And, of course, the outcomes are mixed because you're, you know, you're on a treadmill uh, running. But we had some very successful changes in healthcare in Quebec uh, in the way we managed it. And, uh, and, and as the way we managed the finances of the province. You know, the credit rating in Quebec, Roy, is higher than Ontario. And when the, the Legault government came in, they, they inherited that $8 billion, $8 billion surplus. You're not going to see that in your lifetime again. 
that speaks to the fact that for 15 years, there was a very strong rigor in fiscal conservatism. And that's that's the kind of track record we need for an adult in the room. Mr. Shari, I wish we had more questions than, than, than time, but I have to ask you this. We'll be speaking with Mr. Polyev tomorrow. You don't want wedge politics and attack ads, you say. Don't you think it's too late? It's happening. And, and how do you think your campaign is faring compared to that of Mr. Polyev? Well, you know, Mr. Polyev is very much on that American style of wedge and hot button. That's his business. He can do that. What I know is the Canadians want a Canadian political party. Not American-style politics. The Americans may survive that. And they they have, may be resilient enough to do that. But take this into consideration, Roy. The nature of our culture, our country, and who we are, this ty- type of op- politics where you pit one group against the other would be devastating for Canada. And uh, that's not me. I believe in Canada. I believe in Canadian politics and the way we practice politics. And that, that's what I stand for. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.